0: Good morning. It is good to see y'all in the house of the Lord this morning. Um, I am excited to wrap up First John. Uh, we will uh, back up a little bit before we, we start on verse 5. We're going to get a running start at it again uh, because this first part of chapter 5 is a continuation of the thought in the end of chapter 4. So I'll start reading in... 1 John 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love the God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Starting chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We're going to back up to uh, verse 1. So when we look at this, we see whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And this is a very basic doctrinal statement of the Christian. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that is your ticket to salvation. That is how you can come into communion with Him forever. And that is one of the basics that we build our faith on. So, uh, the second part after the comma, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. So, everyone who loves God, uh, of whom we are all born ones, we are all born of God if you are regenerated, um, he who loves God also loves others who are born of God also. So... We love those who are like us, who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 3, back a couple of chapters, John says, we know that we have passed out of the death into the life. Those are both definite articles there. Um, because we love the brethren. So it's because we love the brethren that we know that we have passed from this death to the life. He who does not love abides in death. Okay, so... John is echoing again what he heard from Jesus here. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. So going back a step further, we know that we love the children of God if we love God Himself and we keep His commandments. And again, this idea of keeping His commandments and linking that with loving God is is found. And we've looked at it a couple of times but if you think about it, think of a young boy, uh, a teenager. Uh, he's fallen in love with this girl. Well, He is going to start brushing his teeth more. He's going to check his nose, make sure you know everything's looking good for her. But back when he was a kid, those commands that his mother gave him felt burdensome to him. She says, go brush your teeth. No, I don't want to brush my teeth. You need to brush your teeth. Like, this is important. So he would finally give in, brush his teeth. Um, but now that he's found this love, then those commands are not burdensome. Uh, it's out of that love that he wants to look his best, be presentable to the one that he loves. So in in a very similar way, um, our love for Christ should be reflected. Uh, and we shouldn't take His commands as burdens because they're really not. Uh, We see all throughout the Scripture that when God gives a command to His people, it's for their benefit. It's not to assert His dominance over them. Um, His people benefit from His commands and they're not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Jesus said, "My yoke is easy, and my burden is light." That's found in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Um, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So we are born ones of God. Uh, we saw in last chapter in First John um, the His declaration that we have overcome the world, and so He's echoing it again, and. In, all the way back in 1 John chapter 2, and this is verse 13, he says, I have written to you young men because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Again, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. That's how these young men that he's writing to have overcome Satan. The word of God abides in them. And it's the same for us. So when we are going about our daily lives and um, there's an attack on us, um, we can refer back to that bank of Scripture in our memories. Um, Of course, you have to read it for it to be in your memories. It doesn't appear there magically. Um, But that is how we overcome those temptations, those those, um, attacks on us. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So you read your Bible, you see that it says very plainly, Jesus is the Son of God, he was fully man, fully God, he died for you and I, he rose again, and our sins are forever wiped clean. You see that in the Word of God, and that truth abides in you. Well, that is what we place our faith in. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And it's that faith that has overcome the world. He who, who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And this is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Okay. There, there are some discrepancies among people smarter than myself about what this verse means. Um, the first is saying that the baptism of water is referring to Jesus' baptism in the Jordan by John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist baptized Jesus with literal water. And the baptism of blood refers to Jesus' baptism of sorts on the cross. Uh, This was the baptism of blood. In Mark 10, 38, Jesus said to James and John, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? This was in direct reference to the crucifixion. So it is Jesus referring to his crucifixion as a baptism. Uh, So that's the first line of thought there. The second is the baptism of water and blood are both referring to Jesus' work on the cross. So if you remember um, in that account, uh, it says that not a bone of the lamb was broken. So Jesus was already dead when the soldiers came to check on him. So instead of breaking the legs to speed up the death on the cross, they pierced his side with a sword you'll remember that um, blood and water spilled out. It is interesting, just a little side tidbit, that uh, when your heart ruptures, there's a sack of water that collects outside the heart. And um, I think that's, that's crazy to think about that Jesus physically, we would say from a physical sense, probably died from a ruptured heart since we we see that water coming out, and of course that's that's a physical perspective of that, um, but I do think that it's it's interesting uh, just to play with that idea. so the second idea is that the baptism of water specifically refers to the water that spilled from his side when when he was pierced uh, moving on to to chapter seven, there are three not chapter seven verse seven. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. So again, we have some different views here. In the most ancient manuscripts, there's a little piece of what we have in the New King James that is not found. So it would read like this. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. So you, you have some manuscripts that include the second part of 7 and first part of 8. You have some that don't include it. There are good arguments for both sides, whether it should or should not be included. Um, I, I don't really see the, the point of arguing that. Uh, It says the same thing, and for us this morning, this is a confirmation of our doctrine of the Trinity. So we see these three persons all agreeing as one. It doesn't matter which way you take it, with seven or without. So again, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. So, whichever way you look at it, a great confidence booster for us as we look at the Trinity. It also speaks to uh, this threefold witness. And we'll see it talked about a little bit more, just the idea of a witness in later verses. But I do want to look at John chapter 5, verses 31 through 40. Bear with me as I read through this. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. Um, When He says, if I bear witness to myself, my witness is not true, He's actually referring back to the Pharisees' law. So Deuteronomy 17.6 says, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So we see multiple witnesses coming in in the law. Jesus says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp and you were willing for a time to rejoice in His light. But I have a greater witness than John's. So John the Baptist, we know, came to to earth and he hearkened to Jesus' coming. He told everybody that he could that the Messiah was quickly approaching. That's a pretty great witness. Like That's A plus right there. But Jesus says that He has a better witness than John did. In the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 15, it says, John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me is preferred before Me, for He was before Me. So again, the idea of everlasting Jesus. Um, the beginning, very beginning of John's Gospel he alludes to this idea as well. In the beginning was the word referring to Jesus. So we see that again. Um, Picking back up in John 5, "...for the works which the Father has given to me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form." But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. They held tightly to their traditions and their laws, and they would not accept Jesus as their Messiah. Going back to 1 John 2.23, "...whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also." So, because the Pharisees denied the deity of Christ, they had neither the Son nor the Father. So, the God that they were worshiping could be said to not truly be the God of the Old Testament because they did not accept that next revelation of His Son. They didn't accept what the Old Testament was a picture of. See, the Old Testament was just a picture of the things to come in Christ. We see the Sabbath is pointing to rest in Christ. We see the the pattern of six and one to the completion of the work of Christ. Everything in the Old Testament you see points directly to the Son. And these Pharisees hardened their hearts and would not believe that. Therefore, we see that they have neither the Father nor the Son. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of Me. But you are not willing to come to Me that you may have life. That's the sad reality of it. So, you're probably thinking, are you telling me that I can study my Bible my whole life, know every word of it, and still not be saved? Well, I'm not telling you that, but Jesus did say that. So. Don't look at me. I'm just the messenger. Um, But that is exactly what he's saying. I'll read it again. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So we can study our Bibles our whole lives. We can know everything about Jesus, but if we don't have that personal relationship with Him, It does us no good. Now, of course, there is merit to knowledge. We need to know who we are giving our worship to. And we need to know who it is we're coming into eternity with. I want to grow in my knowledge so that I know this Jesus that I love and who loves me. So don't dismiss the knowledge for the relationship, but... Don't dismiss the relationship just for the knowledge. They go together. Um, back to this teenage boy that I was talking about. He can love this girl, but if he doesn't know anything about her, he just knows her name, does he really love her? I mean, that's a, I think that's a fair question to ask. So you need to get to know those whom you love. Verse 9 If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe the name of the Son of God. So back up to verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which He has testified of His Son. The witness of men is deeply entrenched in our society and i'm not saying that as a bad thing um, we need the witnesses of men if you look at our judicial system you'll see there's a very high emphasis placed on eyewitness testimonies um, and if you if you look into it a little bit more uh, that may be a reason for concern Because eyewitness testimonies are not always the most accurate things. Um, I would much prefer to be compelled by some kind of forensic or hard evidence as opposed to an eyewitness. Um, Our brains are kind of funny, but they do help us out. They like to look for patterns. So, um, for example, if I do this, you probably see a square although there's there's not really a square there. It's just two lines on each side. Uh, but your mind connects those lines, finds a pattern that you're familiar with, which is a square. So um, if you witness a car accident, and you may think that you've seen it all, you've seen the whole thing go down, but in reality you only heard the crash over to the side, looked over, saw a car flipping up in the air, and then your mind pieced together what happened before that. So this eyewitness testimony can be kind of precarious. you know. It, it's a hit or miss. But thankfully for us, we don't have to re- rely entirely on the witness of man because we have this witness of God. Uh, and the witness of God is the Holy Spirit that indwells believers. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. So how quickly are we to to latch on to this witness of man? Has anybody watched the news lately? Yeah. Um, I know many of you, and I know uh, there are probably some differing opinions on the reality of things presented in the news, but that is the witness of man. What about the weather? Do you believe the weatherman when he said it was going to rain last night? It did. He, he was right that time, <laughs> but he's not right all the time. Uh, in fact, he's got a pretty dismal outlook. Um, <laughs> so luckily, we don't have to rely on the, the witness of man. But we have the Holy Spirit within us that gives us the witness. If you look at John fifteen twenty six, 26, uh, that verse says, But when the Helper comes, referring to the Holy Spirit, the Paracletos, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Jesus says directly that the Spirit is going to testify of me. Verse 10, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. It says, um, has that the witness in himself. So when we are regenerated as Christians, we know that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us and finds it comfortable. Uh, we are washed in the blood. So that fleshly man that used to be who I was is no longer who I am. We were made a new creation. So therefore, God in all of His glory in His holiness can indwell in us and be comfortable there. But it also says he who does not believe God has made him a liar. It isn't Jesus works for you, Zeus works for me, and Buddha works for her. That's not it. Okay? There's two sides to this fight for you, and you're the prize, and these two sides have been going at war with each other since the beginning. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar. So you either choose God or not God. And you don't want to be on the not God side because we already know how that ends. And I see this idea of religious pluralism, which um, can be taken in like the context of coexistence, That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about uh, religions living peaceably beside each other. I'm talking about multiple religions literally being true, okay? So, I see this idea all over the place, and it's prevalent today, Um, but if you apply a bit of logic to the situation, it truly defeats the idea of religious pluralism. So. In fact, every major world religion, and I would extend that to say every religion, um, is claiming exclusivity. So that means that they claim that they're the only religion that's true, okay? Uh, Whether by direct claim or indirect claim. So if Christianity says that Jesus was the Son of God and Judaism says that uh, Jesus was was just a historical man. He wasn't the son of God. They contradict each other on those doctrinal statements. Therefore, they are indirectly claiming exclusivity. Okay, so if you're familiar with Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, you're thinking, well, they say that they're inclusive, that there are multiple roads to the same God. Um, They do claim that. But in claiming that, they exclude all the exclusive religions, right? Because they differ in that foundational doctrine that Hinduism saying um, whatever way you want to take, whatever religion fits you the best, um, do that. Of course, they contradict themselves by proselytizing. So they try to convert people to Hinduism, even though they believe that you're getting to God no matter what. So, I digress, but every religion claims exclusivity. If you have two religions claiming exclusivity, they cannot both be true, because they are both claiming that they are the one true way. So there must only be one way. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. There are only two sides to the struggle. We saw in chapter 4, what I just read from 1 John, um, we see those two sides laid out very plainly. Either you confess that Jesus is the Son of God or you do not. Okay? And you end up in one of two places based on that choice. Even the atheist makes that choice, um, and this you may not have thought about it this way before, but even if the atheist is not placing his faith in God, he has to place his faith somewhere. We all have faith that we place somewhere. we all have a God that we serve, uh, whether you know it's a Idol, it's a statue, it's the one true God Yahweh, or it's money. Um, the atheist may place his or her faith in themselves. I wouldn't want to be in that situation. They may place it in natural processes or the natural world, so i e evolution. Um, just they place their faith that these animals, everything evolved. Uh, through natural processes. Wouldn't want to be in that situation either. Um, So, God has placed His witness in us. And it testifies to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and that He has come. And we know that intuitively. If you're a Christian, you understand that fact. Um, And in the Greek, they would say you "oida." that you know it intuitively. It's not something that you learn, but you're given that intuitive knowledge. Verse 11, And this is a testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Again, John is very cut and dry. Um, At this point, uh, when he's writing this, he's an old man. He's lived a, a rough life. And I would imagine he doesn't think he has time to soften the blow to anyone. Um, he just lays it out. And I kind of admire that about him. But he's he's very black and white. The, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. That's how it is. Um, If you look at Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This speaks directly to the fact that God does not categorize us like we do ourselves. We have all sorts of categories that we place ourselves and others in. God has two categories that He places you in. You're either saved, redeemed by the blood of His Son, or you're not saved. And that's as simple a distinction as needs to be made. If you are saved, you are a son of God. You are redeemed. And all who are in that category are brothers and sisters. And we are new creations. We are born ones of God. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So if we look in the Gospel of John chapter 20 verse 31, he says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So John wrote his Gospel account to proselytize, to help them with their belief in Jesus Christ. He's now saying in verse 13, he has written these things in his first epistle. Um, So this is an exhortation to the churches. I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing to people who already believe. The gospel was written to unbelievers to make them believe. The epistle, this exhortation, the letter to churches of Asia Minor was written to already believers. Um, It was to bring them into the faith even more that you may continue to believe the name of the Son of God. Life is not found in Donald Trump. Life is not found in Joe Biden. Life is not found in Governor Abbott. Life is found in the name of the Son of God. Uh, That's very plain. Acts 4.12 Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Verse 14 Now this is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We've come to an interesting point in Scripture. Um, They are difficult verses for anybody. Um, I definitely wrestled with these this week, Um, but uh, we are going to take a shot at it. We're going to hop back up to verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, We know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. The word confidence used there in the beginning of 14 means a freedom of speech. It can also mean a boldness, but uh, not in in an irreverent sense. Uh, So there is reverence with the boldness with which we come. We do have that confidence or that boldness uh, in him that. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. People will say, we ask anything, He hears us. Skip the qualification. Can't skip the qualification. It's there for a reason. Okay? So if we ask anything according to His will, that is the qualification to the promise. Okay? So uh, we can't skip over that in Philippians 4, six tells us to make our requests known to God. So if you ask uh well sometimes I I pray for a new truck or um I pray for a wife. You know hopefully not a new wife, but a wife nonetheless. Um is that bad that I I ask God for these things? No, it's it's not bad. Um it just may not expressly be according to his will. Um in addition to those petitions, we do need to, to pray according to His will. And I do believe that um, He gives us those things to pray. Um, I, I don't remember who said it, um, but someone said that prayer is like uh, thinking God's thoughts after Him. Uh, so He gives us those things which He wants us to pray back to Him. And prayer is not a, a tool to get our will done in the world. It's a tool to get God's will done in the world. See, uh, if we are praying according to His will, it's His thoughts that we are praying back to Him. So if we do pray according to His will, we are promised that He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, we have that confidence and boldness. Whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. So we know that those things according to his will, he wants to get those things done. So when we pray, it's like we are opening our hearts to those things that he wants to work in our lives. Okay. So, so we want to, to ask God for the things that we want, uh, Philippians 4 6. But we also want to pray according to his will to further his kingdom on the earth. So, John, would have been with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when Jesus was praying before His betrayal and His crucifixion that God would take the cup of suffering from Him. uh, Directly referring to that suffering that would happen on the cross in just a few hours. John would have been in that garden with Jesus. And he would have heard Jesus praying and praying according to God's will. Jesus said, "...not My will." but thy will be done. That is that is the thrust of our prayer. Not my will, but your will be done. So, remember back in the the very beginning of this epistle in 1 John, um, John was talking about the things which we heard, which we saw and we gazed upon. This is what he's talking about these things that he experienced walking with Jesus, um, he, he had the greatest example to take from. And he took that and he recorded it in his Gospel and then referred to those things again in his letters to these churches. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that you should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Here we go. So John just took us to the the most clear point that we could make um, about assurance of salvation, about life in the Son of God, and now he takes us to this verse. It's it's tough um but but we'll we'll take it just a step at a time if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, so what I see here, I see a Christian seeing another Christian in sin, okay, not a Christian seeing a non Christian in sin and calling him out, not a Christian hearing through the grapevine that someone else his brother, a Christian, is sinning. But a Christian seeing a Christian sinning, and it says that he will ask. Presumably, it is the, the Christian who observed the, the brother in sin will ask God, and he will give him life. God will give him life. Of course, God is the only one who can give life. Uh, that he, right before, will give him life should be capitalized in your Bible. That is talking about Jesus Christ. He will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. The sin leading to death is what's commonly referred to as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's the rejection of that witness in us. Okay? We, we read about the witness of the, the Holy Spirit. When you reject that witness, you do not accept Jesus as your Savior. That is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that witness that's in you. That is the sin that leads to death. Okay? And that is the only sin that leads to death. Every other sin was covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. But you have to apply that covering by accepting the gift. So, we see a Christian seeing another Christian in sin, interceding in prayer for that brother... Um, and God forgiving that brother of his sin. Verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to to death. Like I said, all other sins besides rejecting the gift of Christ is pardonable by Jesus' sacrifice. Verse 18, uh, we're going to see a triplet right here of things that we know. Okay, so... We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. And again, that's a uh, present perfect tense. That's continue to sin, live habitually in sin. So you throw off the, the old fleshly man and you embrace the spirit. We know that whoever is born of God does not habitually live in sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Again, a, a this... This verse is not translated the best, in my opinion, in the New King James. Uh, So, I'm going to take just a second to, to go into it. The first part, before the semicolon, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. We've got that down. John has talked about that before, and I think we should be clear on that. After the semicolon, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. When he says, um, he who has been born of God, that should be referring to Christ. Okay? And when it says keeps himself, that himself should be him. So Jesus Christ keeps him who was born of God. And the wicked one, the Poneros one, Satan, does not touch him. So when we are born of God, God keeps us, and we cannot be touched by the wicked one. Of course, everybody remembers the account of Job. Satan had to come to the throne of God and ask permission to touch Job's life. Because, and it literally says, God had a hedge of protection around him. So, I do believe that that's what this is referring to. The wicked one does not touch him. 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And how clearly do we see this right now? Honestly, um, it just becomes clearer and clearer to us uh, by the day. I can't wait for the redemption of creation and the redemption of our bodies into Christ. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Again, true God, there's one. And eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. So John wraps this whole thing up with an exhortation. Keep yourselves from idols. I would encourage you to do the same. Um, just as we do wrap up this morning, uh, there's a lot of things that can get in the way. And it's not, I'm sure, uh, a little golden statue on your mantle. Uh, maybe it's sitting in your living room, though. Maybe it has a large screen on it. Maybe it's in your pocket and it has a little screen on it. Okay, There's a lot of things that can get in the way of God, uh, that relationship that we're supposed to have. So let's do go to the Lord in prayer. Let's wrap up this morning. God, we thank You so much for the revelation that You've given us through Your Word. God, we thank You that we are currently able to still gather and to to study Your Word together. God, we know that uh, there are people... There are people around the world that do not have that same privilege that we do. God, we we pray for them. We ask that You would be with them. And God, we thank You so much uh, for revealing Yourself to us here in 1 John. We thank You for the assurance that You've given us of salvation. And maybe the prod, uh, if we have not accepted Your gift yet, God, we ask that as we go into the world this week, that you would keep us. We know that we we can't keep ourselves apart from you, but that you would keep us, keep us from idols, and keep us in your word. God, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son. It's in your name we pray. Amen.